With all of this talk about artificial intelligence, what gets lost is that AI is not something monolithic. It's not a monolithic thing. And today on episode number 295 of CXO Talk, we're going to explore some different types of artificial intelligence, in particular, something called artificial general intelligence. I'm Michael Craigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Now, before I introduce our guest for today, I want you to tell your friends and I want you to tell them to watch right now and also please subscribe on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button. So today I'm joined by Peter Voss, who is the CEO and the chief scientist at igo.ai. It's a very interesting artificial intelligence company. Peter is a serial entrepreneur and he is a pioneer in this field of artificial general intelligence. Peter Voss, welcome. It's so uh, great for you to be here on CXO Talk. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. So, uh, Peter, tell us, uh, very briefly, tell us about your background. Yes, well, I, I'll maybe elaborate a bit more to, uh, to give some context. Uh, I actually started out in electronics engineering, um, had my own electronics company doing microprocessor control stuff. But then I fell in love with software, and my company turned into a software company. So um, I developed an ERP package and uh, built a company around that, and we went from zero to 400 people and did an IPO, and that, that was fantastic. Um, love to do that again. But the thing that when I sold my interest in the company, uh, uh, trying to decide what I really wanted to do was um, what struck me is how dumb software is. And, you know, I was very proud of my own software, but still, whatever the program I didn't anticipate, didn't think of, um, it really wouldn't, you know, doesn't have any common sense. So I spent five years just studying intelligence, different aspects of intelligence. Um, how do we measure it? Uh, well, even going back to philosophy, what is reality and how do we know anything? You know, how, how do we, how we certain of things? Uh, how do children learn? How is intelligence different from um, human intelligence, different from animal intelligence? And of course, everything that has been done in AI. And then sort of the culmination of those studies, uh, I started my first AI company um, uh, in 2001. And since then, I've been working on, on, on in that field. Okay, so so uh, you have a very broad background. Tell us about igo.ai. What are the what are the kinds of problems that this company is looking at? So in uh, in in, in igo.ai and our product igo is uh, an intelligence engine, a conversational intelligence engine uh, that can be deployed in many different uh, modalities. So it could be the brain of a robot where, that you want to have a conversation with, an intelligent ongoing conversation, uh, or it could be a personal assistant. And we can talk more about the sort of commercialization aspects later, but essentially it's a, it, think of it as a, a, a brain, an artificial brain that can, you can have a real conversation with that remembers what you said, that makes sense of what you're saying, uh, and, and, and so on. Now, where is the intersection between this company and artificial general intelligence, which you have, which you're one of the the pioneers of? How do how do the how do they intersect? Yes. So, 
uh, in 2001, when I started the company, actually um, three of us, Ben Gertzel, Shane Legg, and myself, uh, coined the term artificial general intelligence, AGI, uh, which has now actually become sort of quite widely widely used. Now, um, it's, it's actually what AGI really stands for is the original dream of the field of AI. I mean, the field of AI has been around for uh, more than 60 years. And the pioneers, the initial pioneers uh, in, in AI, really were interested in building a, a thinking, learning machine, a machine that can think and learn the way humans do. But this proved to be really, really difficult. So over the decades, uh, people really changed their ambition and said, we can't solve that problem yet. So let's solve little problems or, or narrow problems like, you know, playing chess is obviously one of the, the, the famous ones, but it could be optimizing container placement or traffic, or it could be medical diagnosis, or it could be any of those. But what, what really happened instead of people building machines that can think and learn by themselves, it's taking the programmer's intelligence and turning that into code to solve a particular problem. So over the decades, AI has really lost its way. You know, it was just turned out to be too hard. So in 2001, when a group of us got together to, to write, write the book, to recapture the original dream and ideal of, of AI, of, of a general intelligence, and, and that's what this, what this is all about. And my effort and for, you know, for the last 20-plus uh, years has really been to make that happen to to build that and uh, the products we've built that we've developed uh, initially in r&d phase and then in, in commercialization uh, are inherently artificial general intelligence based now we're still a long way from human level intelligence but the the uh, the modality that a system can actually learn and reason is, is key to our all of our developments and products now for for those of us who are not experts in the various types of AI and machine learning. Can you draw the distinction between AI, machine learning, and artificial general intelligence as you're developing it? So, um, in, in fact, DARPA gave a presentation uh, last year where they introduced the term or used the term the third wave of AI. And um, what, the, what they mean by that is the first wave of AI was sort of the traditional flowchart type programming. Uh, that's sort of really all the programming in AI that has happened over the decades with various you know, logic, logic approaches and some statistical approaches and so on, but essentially programming. Um, the second wave hit, hit us like a tsunami um, with machine learning about five, six years ago. Um, eventually, there was enough data and processing power that you could just throw a lot of data at, an, at, an, at a program that could then build a model and do very, uh, very impressive categorization and rec recognition and so on. So we've seen that in especially speech recognition, in translation, in image recognition, you know, used for cars, medical diagnosis. So if you have a lot of data and you can use that data to build a model, you can then do categorization and prediction. And that's the second wave. And right now almost everybody talking about ai is actually referring to this big data machine learning deep learning what, whatever terms you want want to use but people are also recognizing and what darpa said we need to move beyond that we need systems that can actually learn immediately interactively 
uh, in the field that can reason, that can explain themselves. And that's what they call the third wave. And that's really what, what, uh, what our approach has been uh, you know, since 2001. And from a technology standpoint, from a development standpoint, you mentioned that the, that you're trying to, I don't, uh, I'm paraphrasing, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, essentially encode human thought, human logic. So my question then is, can you give us a, a kind of layman's explanation as to how do you do that? Yes. So the, the fundamental distinction between narrow AI uh, that we are say it's the programmer or the data scientist who really figures out what is the problem we're trying to solve and how do I solve it? And then they write code or they collect data and they, they tweak the, the network, the model that they're trying to build. So it's the, it's, it's the engineer's intelligence that is being turned into code directly to solve a problem. Whereas the approach with artificial general intelligence is to take our, our intelligence and build a system that can learn and reason by itself. So you're trying to have the intelligence in the system itself rather than taking human intelligence and turning it into code, if that makes sense. So can you, can you give a, a concrete example when you say that have the intelligence built into the system? And I, and I think many of us are familiar now with machine learning. And so how, how is this different? How is the approach different? Right. So fundamentally, what you need for a truly intelligent system, if, if you just sort of think of, you know, when, when would you consider um, an animal or human to be intelligent, that, you, you know, there's somebody at home, basically. Um, there, there's certain basic requirements. You would expect the system to be able to um, remember what you said before, so memory is important, to truly understand what you're saying and to be able to integrate whatever they hear and use that information to learn interactively, that's really a key, uh, a key to it, to use context, you know, that the same input that you get, whether it's text or vision or whatever, depending on what the context is, what you're trying to achieve, who you're talking to, what your goals are. So interactive learning, context, memory, remembering things, reasoning, uh, all of those things are key um, to to real in intelligence. Now, does this type of intelligence rely upon uh, very, very large data sets? As, uh, as you explained to me earlier when we were talking, AI has its roots going back way before the quote unquote big data. So, so, so again, where does data fit in and, and how, does it, how is this different from machine learning as we know it? Right. So machine learning or the second sort of second wave in, in DARPA's parlance is really focuses entirely on big data and uh, big, you know, computation. Um, and so that, that's one approach. And clearly, as humans, when we learn as well, we are exposed to to a lot of data that as we interact with with the world. So that is important as sort of a, a baseline background information um, that, that you need for an intelligent system. But uh, I think it's important that it isn't all of your focus that goes, goes there, that the, the real focus of intelligence is that interactive learning. So, for example, uh, a, a child, it, they can just see a giraffe, a picture of a giraffe for the first time, and they'll immediately be able to recognize giraffes. You know, it's just distinctive enough. Now, with machine learning, 
you you need to give it thousands of examples and counter examples and so on. So there isn't that immediate uh, recognition and learning, the sort of what, what's called one-shot learning, that you can just get one instance. Or if somebody gives you a piece of information, a single sentence, that immediately that information becomes becomes available. So that's uh, the big data has a role to play in terms of, uh, especially with things like vision, you, you need to be exposed to a lot of background information and, and sort of reference points that you need to learn. But once you have that, you need to be able to to learn sort of instantaneously. And what about the the technology for developing this? I mean, it sounds like it's almost like like thinking machines. Actually, you, I'm sure you remember, I remember there, there was a company called Thinking Machines in here in Cambridge many, many years ago. But but you know it kind of has the ring of of science fiction. So in terms of the realism scale and uh, delivering results, where are we today on that continuum? Right. Um, so what what we've been doing and what we believe the third wave of of AI really is about to build a cognitive architecture. And there are actually several, uh, quite a few people who. Um, who share that sentiment? Uh, in, in, in fact, the, the, the head of Google's DeepMind said we need to look more at the way the brain works, uh, you know, to to achieve real intelligence. And I think I, I agree with it. Maybe not the brain, but the way our, our mental processes work. So we need a cognitive architecture. We need a system that inherently has short-term memory, long-term memory, reasoning, context, you know, metacognition, all of these things. Um, capabilities for all of these things in an integrated way, in an integrated functional way. And, and I think that's the way to, to go about it. Uh, Jeff Hinton, uh, the uh, sort of godfather of deep learning, recently said uh, we should throw it all out and start again from deep learning because of this big data backpropagation that you're basically building a model in the factory and then the model is read-only. It can't adapt in, in, in the real world. We need to get away from that. So the cognitive architecture that inherently has the ability to learn interactively, I think, is, is absolutely crucial. So where are we? Well, um, the thing is, big data machine learning has been so successful in so many areas. Uh, for example, you know, for Google to increase their improve their click rate by, you know, 0.1% is probably worth billions. So, you know, that's what they have. They have a lot of data, they have a lot of compute power, and all the big companies have. So that's the hammer they have, so everything looks like a nail. And, you know, for them, yes, if they can improve, incrementally improve uh, those kind of services in their advertising revenue uh, or Amazon, their, their, their sales, targeting sales, um, then it's very valuable to them. But the problem is, the, the success of deep learning, machine learning, has sucked all of the oxygen out of the air as far as AI uh, development is concerned. If you want to do a PhD, it has to be in, in, it has to be in um, machine learning or deep learning. If you want to you know, get paid the big bucks, that's what you want to be in in the field. So uh, it's really hard for, to get traction in the field of, um, uh, of, of cognitive architectures. And we've just been persisting on... Uh, improving that technology uh, over the years, and um, you know we've made some some really good progress with that, and it just needs more effort. So it sounds like cognitive architectures, as you're describing, ultimately solve a much broader uh, class of problems, but 
machine learning and similar technologies have a, an immediate and direct payoff in, in the present. And so therefore it's natural, not to mention the hype, everybody, you know, everybody jumps on the bandwagon. And so these forces uh, propel folks into, into machine learning as opposed to the broader set of architectures that you're describing. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, there is, there is a good reason for, um, for machine learning and deep learning solving narrow particular problems that you want to solve. If you can build a model that can solve that problem, um, then that's great. You, you can actually get something that, that works within that domain, you know, quite effectively. Uh, yes, there's a lot of hype and a lot of companies sort of feel they, they need to jump on the bandwagon of machine learning, deep learning. Uh, without really knowing, you know, why they need it. It's just, uh, we've got to be there. You know, everybody's doing it, so we've, we've got to do it. Where there could be more conventional uh, techniques that have been around for, for a long time of, of categorizing or rec rec pattern recognition that may actually be much more effective uh, than, than deep learning. So, yes, there is the, the hype angle, and then there's the fact that it really does work very well for narrow applications. So it's much harder building a system that can potentially learn a much broader range of, of things. So it, it does kind of make sense that people would focus on that, but unfortunately it's sort of at the expense of, of almost exclusively focusing on machine learning. So now uh, let's shift gears slightly because I think you've given us an excellent background and thank you for that. Because I've been trying to, to understand the, the distinctions between these different types of AI, and, and it's really hard to get simple, clear information. But now, uh, tell us about the types or classes, uh, categories of problems that you're trying to solve and how you're, you're applying uh, these techniques as you've been describing to, to your own company and your own uh, com commercial results, products. Right, um, yes. So, before I go into that, I just want to say that artificial general intelligence, of course, is, is, is about building machines that can think and learn and reason, but specifically can learn interactively. So potentially they could also be, um, you know, sort of animal level intelligence. It could be a, a robot that can, um, you know, learn uh, to interact with, with the world. Uh, our focus, uh, when we did our initial research, we actually did quite a bit of work in that in that area. We had a, a virtual mouse in a virtual environment that, you know, learned to navigate, and it had virtual whiskers and ears and eyes and 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 so on. Um, but we came to the conclusion uh, after quite a bit of development work uh, that focusing on natural language, on human language, was a um, more sensible approach for us to achieve. Uh, to, to work towards uh, AGI. Um, so our focus has really been on natural language. And um, in 2009, our technology had been developed sufficiently to commercialize it in the call center space. So um, uh, I launched a company called Smart Action. It's now called SmartAction.ai. Uh, has, you know, has to be a .ai company. So, um, and we... We have the intelligence engine running conversations for automating call center calls uh, very effectively. And uh, at a, at a, you know, most, mostly when, you, when I tell people that uh, uh, we're about smart action and that we're automating calls, they, they say, well, yeah, I hate these things. You know, they, they, they're horrible. I always hang up or press zero, you know, to get to an operator. 
And, and I say, yes, it's because the wrong, they're using the wrong technology. They're using wave one technology to try and solve the problem. So with our cognitive engine, we can offer much, much better experience there that it can really understand you. It has memory. It remembers what you said previously. It can disambiguate things and, and so on. So Smart Action has, has been uh, quite successful uh, in commercializing our, our technology, um, but it's, it's still a fairly a relatively narrow application because in the call center, of course, you're just trying to solve a particular problem like AAA is using it for roadside assistance. Uh, you know, MGM Hotels is using it for how can I help you to route, route the calls. Um, Terminix was using it for scheduling uh, appointments. So you could say, do you have an appointment? Uh, I want to make an appointment next week. What do you have? And then the, our agent might say, I have something on Thursday at 3 o'clock. And you might come back and say, do you have something a little later? You know, and you could have that kind of conversation. But they're still relatively narrow. And our ambition really is to have a, a, a broader intelligence and, importantly, an ongoing conversation that you have that the system learns about you gets your history, and that becomes more and more useful. So five years ago, I, I um, handed over management of, of, of that of Smart Action and started Igo.ai to focus on cranking up the, the, the capabilities, the intelligence of, of our system so that it can have more complex conversations and, and, and a broader range of, of applications. So now we are looking at um, applications from putting our Igo brain into a, a robot so that you can, you know, for example, in a hospital or hotel, that it could remember, uh, rem remember previous transactions and, you, you know, and, and be useful that way. It could go into a games engine. It could be used for helping people manage diabetes, or it could be used as a natural language interface to complex software. There's a big demand that software is becoming that complex, especially enterprise software, that people ideally want to just be able to talk to their talk to their, their computers and, and say, you know, show me the sales results for the last three months in Europe. And then, you know, it pops up and uh, then you want to be able to say, exclude Britain because they're going to Brexit and it should just do that. Uh, it should also have a memory that you could say, run that cash flow report you did for me last week. And, you know, then it should say, well, do you mean the one for Argentina or the one for Brazil? So that you have this personal assistant to help you with complex software. And then for us, the sort of the, the ultimate app is a personal personal assistant, you know, that, that stays with you permanently, that learns about you, and uh, that can really, really be much more useful than the current chatbots that we have out there. That personal assistant, that's, that's a very hard problem. I mean, even Calendar, there are a number of companies that are doing, uh, using AI, cognitive bots of various, or some cases, just simple chat bots to try to schedule. And once you dig into this, and I looked at this, once you dig into the, the complexities of something as simple as scheduling a meeting, there are so many variants. And to do that well, if, if, I, I'm not sure if anybody's doing that extremely, extremely well today. These are very hard problems, deceptively hard. Yes, I think you, 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 you put your finger on something very important of what we as humans consider simple, trivial, you know, scheduling an appointment um, just relies on a lot of common sense uh, or, or even 
beyond common sense, you know, specific knowledge. I mean, let's take the example of scheduling an appointment. Let's say you want to schedule an appointment um, with an investor, um, and there, you know, three other, three or four other people in the appointment. The subtlety of how you word it, you know, what flexibility you allow for the various players in in that, you know, who who is more important than somebody else, and uh, you know, who is optional, and but the subtleties of that and how you word that. Uh, I mean, you couldn't just hire somebody off the street to do that for you. You know, you that that's why a CEO secretary um, is you know a highly skilled person who understands these sort of human dynamics, and that that's it's going to take a, a, quite a while for AI to get to the point where where it really has that sort of common sense knowledge. But it you know it, it, we can get there, but it, it is actually a uh, deceptively hard problem to solve scheduling. So we, we have to pick our fights, you know, in terms of as a personal assistant, you have to learn what is it good for. So scheduling appointments within your group in the company, yes, fine. You know, you, that, that I think uh, you can do well. Um, but, you know, people also think that uh, planning a trip or a vacation is, is, is trivial. Well, actually it isn't. I mean, recent trip, I just a simple trip to New York. I spent 45 minutes just you know, looking at the options, you know, do I want to get there an hour earlier or later or, you know, how reliable is the airline and then what hotel, how far away do I want to be and all, all the different things. And, uh, you know, it's not, if, if it's very routine and standard, if you always stay at the same kind of hotel and same trip, well, sure, you, you can do that. But there are many things that we do that actually are quite complex. But the beauty of our, of, of, of our approach of a cognitive engine is that the system remembers what it did for you before it can reason about it it can ask you to clarify and it'll then remember that so we inherently have the technology to solve these problems robustly but uh yes it, it's it's a long way to go to human level performance and common sense you raised a an interesting point that when even in something as as seemingly simple as scheduling a meeting it brings in issues of emotions, perception, uh, social perceptions of social status and social hierarchy, things like that. And so as you're building the system, your, your system, how do you introduce and how do, how, do you how do you think about the architecture of the emotional and this perception aspect of the AI as it interacts with people so that it looks and feels right? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's an interesting question. Now, um, an AI needs to be able to recognize emotions, but there are there is already quite a bit of technology to to be able to do that, to recognize emotions, and then to be in the right mode. And we call that sort of metacognition that you you have an overall sense of where your own thought process is, and then a theory of mind of what the other person's thought process is. And, you know, emotions are obviously one element. Uh, you know, is somebody in a hurry? Are they aggravated or are they happy or, or whatever it is? And these are pretty subtle things. But, and, and again, it's something that we'll get better at over time. And I, I think one of my uh, sort of hobby horses here on in, in this area is that companies are trying to uh, fool people in, into believing that their AI is a human. And, and, you know, Google with their duplex just did this demo a few, a few months ago uh, where they put ums and ahs in there and so on. 
I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think when you're dealing with an AI, you should be upfront that you are dealing with an AI and, you know, that people would frame it correctly um, and realize that, well, yes, it's not going to have that same emotional content, but it has other skills. It has, uh, you know, uh, photographic memory. It has instance to, to a lot of information that can calculate very well. And, and I think it's much more useful for people to know that they're dealing, dealing with an AI so that they can capitalize on the strengths and, and not be sidelined by, you know, expecting it to, to respond to subtle emotional cues um, as, as effectively as a good human would. <laughs> why do you feel that way? Is it an ethical issue? Are there practical commercial reasons? Why do, why do you have that perspective? I think it's both. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, ethically, I don't feel, feel comfortable trying to fool people into, in, into believing that you're talking to a human when, you, when you're talking to a machine. Uh, it just, yeah, it's not, not right. I mean, any, any sort of dishonesty in my, my way uh, is, is just, you know, you're off on the wrong track. But from a practical point of view, as, as I, I mentioned, it is also if people know that they're talking to a computer, they can adjust to that. Now, the counter argument uh, is that they may hang up on you or what, whatever, you know. So uh, you need to be, you need to give people what they want. My, my experience in smart action at the call center automation was you can tell people that they're talking to a computer, but you have to, it has to work. People are totally happy to talk to a computer if immediately they're getting results. You know, it, it's not, doesn't come up with a menu and say, you know, your business is important to us. Our options have changed recently. Please listen carefully, you know, uh, press one for whatever, you know, and then go through a long list of things. Well, of course, people will hang up on that. And so they should, you know, I mean, companies shouldn't be allowed to offer that kind of technology anymore, you know. Um, but if if you if your AI says how can I help you you know I'm I'm your AI helper if you want to be explicit about it uh, or if you want to give it through more subtle cues like just that the voice is just a little bit robotic that you kind of know that it that it is you know a, a robot however you want to do that but if you immediately say how can I help you and the system understands you and says oh okay I can do that I can solve that for you or I can transfer you or you know I see you haven't I see you have an order that you're waiting for. Is are you calling about this? You know. So if it works, then everybody is happy, and but and people don't don't get misled. They have the right expectations. We have a question from Twitter. A good question that 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 I'm remiss in not having asked because it's kind of an obvious one, which is what are the applications or the use cases of artificial general intelligence that you're developing or working on at Igo.ai. Okay, well, thank, thanks for that question, of course. So uh, I already mentioned some of them. I didn't specifically say that that's what, what we're doing. But the two biggest applications, one is in the consumer space as a personal, personal assistant. And in fact, that's our tagline, a personal, personal assistant. And, and the reason we, we came up with you know, that, uh, Monica, is personal is really, really important. It, and personal has three different dictionary definitions, all of which are important. The first one is personal ownership. You own it, which currently of the current chatbots and so-called personal assistants, you don't own them. It's some mega corporation that owns and controls it to serve their agenda. So with us, it's yours. You own it you, and you own all the data that goes with it. Uh, so that's the first meaning of personal. The second meaning of personal is personalization or customization. 
that it adapts to you, it learns. So it's permanently with you and it gets better over time as it learns more and more. So the customization aspect. And the third meaning of personal is private, confidential, that basically it will share, it will only share information you wanted to share and who you want to share it with. So some information you may not want to share with anyone, some with your spouse, some with your uh, colleagues at work and so on. So you have this permission-based uh, security. So all of these three items we, we feel are really important. That's why we call a personal personal assistant. Then, of course, the other thing is that it has this cognitive architecture and a much higher level of, of intelligence, of memory and reasoning and, and so on. So that's a key application. But of course, breaking into the consumer market with a new product like that um, you know, will, will take time. So we're actually building a, com a community of, of users and we can maybe talk about that in terms of how we use blockchain for that. The other area is an enterprise and there we are really looking at on the medical side for diabetes management or for coaching and for robotics and we have interest in all of those areas but the area that we we see as probably the first area we're going to totally focus on is this software front end this intelligent assistant we call it a co-pilot for software so for complex software so whether it's you know uh, salesforce or sap or some business intelligence software or QuickBooks or, or whatever, that you can basically talk to your software, you can, it can help you um, if you don't understand something. So without having to go through down, you know, many menus to get to where you want to go and then fill out a form of what you want to do, you can actually just talk to the software. And there's huge demand. Basically, all the software companies are looking for a solution like that. Uh, and they're finding you can't solve it with conventional chatbot technology, that you really need something more cognitive, you know, a cognitive architecture. So that's that's a huge, huge area, and we're really well positioned to to target that. Well, I'm looking for just a calendar assistant that my my expectations as a consumer are much lower. I just want a calendar assistant that will schedule things and do it well. So whenever you whenever you're you feel yours is ready, I'd love to try it out. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you, you can you can register your low serial number for for Igo and be the first on the block to to get one. If you go to my.igo.ai and you can um, you can register and be one of the first users of our personal personal assistant. I will I will do it. My.igo.ai. Now now you just you mentioned community and you mentioned blockchain and I'm glad you did because I. I Wanted to be sure we we speak about that. So, so where is the intersection now of blockchain and what you're doing? Yes, it's. I mean, it's just sort of a fascinating field that sort of um, just emerged in the last few years, and 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 really, in the it's exploded in the last year, where blockchain technology has become available and. Uh, there are a lot of people with ex or more and more people with expertise in that area. So what a blockchain is, it's, it's a secure ledger um, that you can basically record things securely um, and it's tamper-proof in inherently. And most applications also, the, the blockchain is decentralized so that you have that extra security that it's, there are many copies of, of the ledger that exist. So you can't just have one person fudging it or, uh, you know, what, whatever. Now, a separate aspect of that that sort of goes hand in hand with that is cryptocurrency. 
Um, so blockchains themselves can be used without cryptocurrency just to have a um, secure ledger. But many of the applications of blockchains actually involve a cryptocurrency. And that's really, really fascinating that, you know, on the one hand, we have Bitcoin where people just see it as a value of uh, a store of value uh, and ability to, to basically exchange value, um, you know, across borders. And, but then you get um, a, 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 a cryptocurrency or platform like Ethereum where it goes beyond that where you have the currency element of Ethereum, it has value in itself, um, like, um, like Bitcoin, but it also, has, uh, it also serves as a platform to allow other people to use this blockchain and to have smart contracts so that you can embed smart contracts. So you really have you know, the, the, the three things, you have, a, 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 you have the ledger, you have smart contracts, and you have a currency. And the beauty of it with Ethereum, you can sort of create your own local currency for your project. And, and that's basically uh, what, what we're doing in the, in the consumer market. And where is the intersection with artificial intelligence? Why are they natural partners? Because I know that's, that's your perspective. Right. So uh, there, are, there are quite a few different applications with uh, blockchain and, and AI. Um, in fact, I, I just came from a conference, uh, uh, Brains and Chains in New York, um, and people were talking about how AI can help improve the blockchain. So that's one thing, using AI technology to optimize um, the performance of, of blockchains. Um, so that's one, one area of, of where they come, come together, probably not that well explored. And then there, the other aspect is where the blockchain can help uh, deploy um, AI in some way, and there are a number of companies offering services where um, <clears throat> they're creating a marketplace of AI capabilities, and that could either be algorithms, programs, AI programs, and, and in most cases they are narrow programs, you know, because uh, then very few of them, very few people are working on AGI, so in most cases it would be um, some uh, marketplace for AI algorithms, so anybody who could develop an al algorithm can sell it in that so think of it as an ebay of, um, of of you know algorithms trading and then they maybe use the platform in some way to coordinate these things um, the other ai angle is a marketplace for for data because with machine learning deep learning data is really really important so the more data you have and access you have to data the better so people are using blockchain to create a marketplace to say if you have some data that's valuable put it on a marketplace put it on the blockchain so that it secures your you know, your ownership is registered, and then maybe using smart contracts that you can get paid for if somebody uses the data. So it's AI algorithms and data that uh, are put on a marketplace. Now, our own approach uh, on, on, on where the, the blockchain ecosystem is so useful for, for our personal personal assistant is in, in three different ways. Um, the first way is that because you have an instance of Igo, you own your, your own personal assistant. It's, you know, it's yours. It's, each one has a serial number. That serial number is recorded on the blockchain permanently. It's against your name. So your ownership of, the, of Igo, the personal assistant, together with all the data is secured on the blockchain it's, it's, you know, it's in, in that ledger. That's the first thing. The second thing is because people can also teach Igo new skills, so, for example, if you are uh, good at helping people manage stress, 
then you might teach Igo how to help people manage stress. And that, that app or that skill, you can then put on the Igo store and sell it to other people. And the, the blockchain smart contracts keep track of royalties that need to be paid, or if it's a one-time fee or whatever, whatever you determine how you want to be paid for that. Um, so that's the second uh, important use, having these smart contracts that get executed automatically. There's no middleman involved. There's no extra overhead involved in terms of the paperwork. It just happens on, on, on the blockchain. And then the third aspect of it for the community is to have an IGO token as a currency for people to actually use those IGO services and IGO intelligence. And the beauty of that is because it's its own local currency with a fixed supply, and as the community grows with an increasing demand, the the users, uh, the, the community benefits from you know from that that local currency that that we have, and that's really a, it's a new business model. It's really very innovative, uh, and it's fantastic for building a community, rewarding the community, and and that community really working together to achieve the, the bigger objective. So for you, uh, blockchain is part of. Uh, both business model and go to market. In a way, business model is is well is very much related to go to market, rather than technology. Uh, it's obviously very distinct from the AI technology that you're developing. So it's so it's in the service of bringing your technology products to market. Is that a correct assertion? Yes, that uh, that is correct. So it's an integral part of uh, assuring that. People, people's ownership is recorded, that the transactions uh, can, can happen smoothly between uh, creators and consumers of, of IGO intelligence uh, and, and basically making that community work, work well. Uh, that's, that's correct. Peter, we have just a few minutes left and can you look into your crystal ball and Tell us where what's coming down the pike in, in, a, in a practical, reasonable way that's going to come to market in the next, say, two, three years, rather than looking 10 years out. Where, where is AI going in the next couple of years? Well, <laughs> crystal ball is always difficult. Um, there's certainly a, a, a huge amount of momentum on deep learning, machine learning, big data, and that, that will continue. There are many applications where that's the right tool to use. You know, we have a specific narrow uh, um, sort of static problem to solve uh, and you can get enough training data uh, to, to train a model and then have that sort of read-only model or largely read-only model execute. So I, that, that will continue undoubtedly. But I think people and companies will become more savvy to figure out where that actually works and where it doesn't work. Um, a few years ago, people thought that natural language could be solved by machine learning, deep learning, just give it enough data. Uh, by now, it's pretty universally accepted that natural, meaningful natural language conversations, sort of ongoing conversation, cannot be handled with uh, just deep learning by itself. So I, I see the cognitive architecture approach that, that we're having, I think, will play a bigger and bigger role as companies are realizing the, the limitations or more generally even saying the sort of AGI approach that you need to have a system that can learn instantaneously unsupervised that you don't need a lot of labeled data that it can like the example I gave you see a giraffe once okay I now know what a giraffe looks like 
so in perception and action that the systems can learn immediately by interacting with the environment. And uh, I think there's, there's a, you know, people are still looking for those kinds of solutions. Um, and I think they will soon discover that a cognitive architecture is the way to go. Okay, well, we're out of time, but I wish we had more time. What a very uh, engaging and fast conversation. Peter Voss, thank you for taking the time and, and being with us here today. Well, thanks for having me. That was fun. Thank you. We have been speaking with Peter Voss, who is the CEO and the chief scientist at igo.ai. What a very great and interesting show this has been. Be sure to go to cxotalk.com and check out our other videos. And don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. Now is the time. And tell your, tell your friends to do that too. Thanks so much, everybody. And I hope you have a, uh, a great day. Bye-bye.